1536. Fleeing from the Inquisition, the alchemist Uberto Fulcanelli was determined to perfect an invention which would provide him with the key to eternal life. He was to name it the Kronos device. No, mi amor, no es de chocolate, no. Una cosa como esta ocurre una sola vez en la vida. Una sola vez en la vida. ¿Qué te parece que sea? ¿Un juguete? ¿Qué es? No sé, una limadura de metal. No es más bien como un aguijón de abeja, no sé. ¿Un insecto? Ese es el toque maestro. Get ready for some more. Cronus is the first, uh, is the debut film of Guillermo del Toro. It's a huge thing because if you like del Toro, basically this is the blueprint for all, all of his films. Like most of his films, is this like folk tale or fairy tale about uh, an antique seller that finds within a statue uh, an ancient, ancient clockwise device that gives internal life. And the whole thing is seen through the eyes of his small granddaughter. And that's, that's what make, makes Kronos a, a del Toro classic, a vampire classic. Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jenks, your host, and that was Emilia Portis talking about Guillermo del Toro's 1993 feature film debut, Kronos. You may know Mr. Portis as the co-writer and director of Belzebuth, a fantastic horror film that is currently streaming on Shudder. Mr. Portis, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you to you. I, it's an honor to be here. Oh, now, can I ask, uh, you know, as with every episode of the show, I, I always tend to ask my guests, out of any horror movie they might have gone with, out of any they might have chosen to discuss, why go with the one you did? Why go with Kronos? Well, Kronos, especially for me, it's an important film. I'm, uh, the film uh, was shot in the 19s, which is uh, a very specific time in Mexican filmmaking, which is called the the new wave of the Mexican cinema. And uh, there you can find all the debut films of uh, not only Del Toro, but also uh, Alfonso Cuaron, uh, Maria Novaro. Uh, and uh, all that block uh, ends a little bit with, uh, with uh, Iñárritu's film in the 2000s. And practically, we're, we're coming from an age where, uh, uh, where in Mexican cinema, uh, you only saw films which went to festivals and you really didn't get in TV or cinemas uh, uh, amazing films from uh, Felipe Casals and Jorge Fons and, and a lot of people. But you really, they weren't very mainstream. And what you get on, on, on Mexican cinema were... Uh, Mostly it's exploitation films, <laughs> uh, very, very much like the, the, the Dolomite uh, films. That was mostly what 
and and all time classics uh, reruns on TV from the 1940s and 60s, no, and but this new wave of filmmakers uh, uh, because uh, deliver on screen is 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 at least for me is that they did look like movies like like the movies like the American movies I wa- I used to watch uh, as a kid and, and later on as, and and as a teenager when. When Kronos came came out in 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 in, in theaters, uh, I was around like starting high school or something like that. I, I wasn't pretty sure uh, I wanted to do films, but this was uh, another flavor, you know. And and nobody else had seen. I haven't. Uh, you, it was like a, a fresh view of uh, of not only. Uh, 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 filmmaking, Mexican filmmaking, but it was a horror movie, man. You know, like perfectly shot. Uh, yesterday, when I was rewatching the film, I mean, uh, the, the Navarro's uh, photography is amazing. So, so it really was like a, a really shock for not only me but for to everyone. You know. Now, how would you say like the the landscape of filmmaking has changed since Chronos, and would you credit Chronos with changing it you know uh or at least you know would you say the genre filmmaking has changed considerably since chronos came out in uh, unfortunately unfortunately it hasn't changed a lot uh, it's starting to change right now but uh i mean before chronos uh, uh the only guy who was doing real serious horror was este carlos enrique tabuada or maybe Jodorowsky. And that's from the late 60s, 70s, and I mean, Kronos is is on the on the 90s. So it's like 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 uh, this this kid comes around and 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 and, think, and 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 says, okay, I'm going to do a horror film that looks like a horror film, uh, not as a, a low budget film, but a real something like huge, you know. And that's 1993, and until 2006, I think it comes the the another important horror movie that has that quality in terms of 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 of, uh, of image and proposal. That is Rigoberto's Castañeda's Kilometro 31, and from that, I think it's uh, Somos Lo Que Hay from Jorge Michel Grau, which which was also on the film critics in Cannes. Uh, so it, it, Mexican horror has been just not very present because a lot of problems of the of the industry, which are very complex, uh, for just going around into this podcast. But until now, that the production is more stable and they're more open to to, to other film genres beyond romantic comedy, we're starting to see more. Uh, uh, horror films, serious horror films, such as uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid, or maybe my own film, and uh, a couple of films which are coming out, and at, but only until now, a home uh, in Mexico, pues, uh, uh, horror, horror, horror films are, are like going steady, you know, the production. Yeah. So what makes Kronos very special about very other things is that is the horror film from the decade, you know, and and 
and that's that. <laughs> I, you know, I uh, not to digress too much, but you mentioned a name as uh, Carlos Taboada, and it occurs to me, you know, I've heard his name a couple of times now, and uh, I have never seen a single one of his movies, but I'm hoping to change that soon. One of his, um, uh, I had it written down here. Some, um, well, he has a, he has a lot of classic, which is uh, uh, even uh, and uh, even uh, even the the wind has uh, fear. Hasta el viento tiene miedo. Yes, that's Our... just a Blu-ray here, and I'm planning that will be my first Tabuada, probably. Yeah, and the last one, uh, which is one of his best and most amazing films, is uh, Veneno para las Hadas, Poison for the Fairies, which is shot around 1984. And Tabuada has a lot of films. Well, not a lot of films, but he has, like, the five most uh, important films from the 70s to the 80s, which makes him one of the most, which makes him a horror filmmaker, like a director who does the, who who shots who shoots uh, uh, horror films. You know, he also shot a, a lot of stuff, but but mainly he has that 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 passion for 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 horror. Cool. I need. And, I, I I there are blind spots in my. Uh... You know, and, and so many filmmakers' filmographies for me. Like, I, there's so many blind spots that uh, I need to catch up with. And certainly he is one. So uh, I'd really, part of that is down to availability here uh, of his work. So, you know, I'm not certain that a lot of his movies are available here. But when I saw that, uh, I think uh, uh, Even the Wind is Afraid, I saw that it was recently released to Blu-ray here. Maybe just this past week, in fact. So I definitely wow. want to pick that up and sort of dive in because I've heard nothing but great things about his work. Yeah, he's really amazing. Uh, maybe the cinematography is not that great, but the writing and the framing and the uh, the, the actors are mind blowing, and and they're very classic films. And which is important about Enrique Tawada's films that he's as Del Toro, he's trying to do serious horror, you know, not not because there were many uh, horror. Uh, uh, low budget B movies, uh, exploit- <laughs> uh, horror exploitation films. I do love Spice in- Santa. <laughs> yeah, like the Santa. Yeah, like the, the like the wrestler movies, uh, which is a, a a known movie genre in it, within itself here in Mexico. <laughs> I believe in in the whole world, but they were B movies. No, nobody t- took them seriously, you know. But Tabuada did, and it has and it has to. And and Tabuada ends in the in the eighties, and Del Toro comes again into the nineties to do serious a serious horror film. Very cool. And with Kronos, I mean, I you know I'm so glad you chose the movie. I think this is the first uh, Del Toro film that's been chosen to uh, to be spoken about on uh, Scream Addicts, and I just I adore this movie. I have since I was a kid. You know, from the time I. Uh, I was a kid. I read Fangoria. I probably started when I was, uh, you know, early in my teens. And one of the first issues that I ever picked up had Mimic on the cover at around the time that it hit theaters. And, you know, of course, you know, having read about it, I immediately hit theaters and watched Mimic and dearly loved it, even though it was the theatrical cut that we now know was compromised. And I studied the Fangoria article that had come out, and I immediately became a fan of Del Toro just by reading uh, what he had to say about filmmaking and his approach to filmmaking. And then, you know, in the course of that article, I discovered that he made this previous film called Kronos. So I went to my local ah. video store, you know, back when there were video stores. I miss video stores. I rented a copy and I was just 
blown away. You know, I tried to revisit so, the movie every once in a while, and it's one of those. So you you did know about the film? I I thought you you didn't know about the film. Oh, Cronus? Oh, no, Cronus, yeah. I absolutely did. Yeah, from the time I was young. I did not know uh, the Tabuata, uh, any of his films I had not seen. But, uh, no, Del Toro, I've been a, uh, a huge fan of since I was a kid, you know. And it's uh, and that's down to that one-two punch of Mimic and Cronus. You know, it's one of those movies that I always, you know, try and revisit every few years. It's one of those rare films that continually holds up under multiple viewings, I think. It never loses its power. Yeah. And I think that's true of a lot of Del Toro's work, I think. But... You know, Kronos is just one hell of a debut. And I think you mentioned, like, it's kind of a blueprint for his later work. And it's funny, on the revisit for me, like, when you look at this film, it's his first film. But in that first film, we have the visual language and thematic concerns that he would revisit time and time again throughout all of his work. But with most filmmakers, is there not an evolution of sorts. You know, they will grow more adept at storytelling. They will hone their skills as craftsmen. But with Del Toro, I can't really see that this is the case. And that is in no way an insult. Rather, it's just that this film is so damned good. And he already, by this point, seems so fully formed as a filmmaker that Kronos, sure, it could be viewed like as a first film, yeah, but you could place Kronos anywhere in his filmography. And it would still fit. This could be his follow-up to The Shape of Water, and it wouldn't feel like he had taken a step backwards, I don't think. I think it's just perfect. Yeah. The thing is that uh, it's, it's like watching Hitchcock films. I mean, at, at what point Hitchcock was doing like the best, like the same movie with different uh, uh, with different pieces, you know? And I think that that's true for Del Toro, for Kronos. He has all, all the... the 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 elements like uh, the monster which is amazing which uh, Juan Gris which uh, which uh, Jose Gris which, which be, uh, I mean Jesus Gris which becomes the this vampire monster and, and it's gradually uh, grows in, into this awful vampire but also it, it has this constant of of the villains the 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 bad guys of the film which are the real monsters of the movie. And in this case, Ron Perlman and Claudio Brook are humans. They are not monstrous, but <laughs> really are the, the big monsters of the, of, of the, of the films, such as the, the billions in uh, Pan's Labyrinth or uh, the guys in uh, uh, Michael Shannon on Shape of Water. And, and I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's like you have all this, the ingredients uh, uh, in in Kronos for, for for understanding Del Toro. Yeah, and it's I love that he does that. I love that nothing is quite black and white in his movies. You know, as with his other films, like you know, you you like you noted, we have a movie here where we have the villains who are say quote unquote like normal, but we also have you know we have a movie where the monster isn't a villain, which you know is. It's a really nice thought. The monster is the hero. We have that in uh, Hellboy. Yes. Uh, we have that arguably in Blade 2. We have uh, the Devil's Backbones, Santi, the little ghost. We have the Shape of Water's Amphibian Man. And with Kronos, we have uh, Jesus Gris, who is a man who is becoming a vampire throughout the course of the film. But he's also surely our hero who guides us through the story. And I've, I've always loved that about Del Toro's work. And it reminds me of... Um, 
It reminds me of being a kid and watching some of the classic Universal Monsters movies and being a bit confused about where my loyalties should be because Frankenstein's monster scared me as a kid, but I also cared about him. <laughs> you know, uh, Talbot may be terrifying as the Wolfman, but he's also our entry point into the story and we want him to succeed and beat his curse. And it seems to me that, you know, humanizing what is thought of as monstrous or other seems to be very important to del toro as a storyteller well the thing is that that horror has uh, from from the universal classic has grown uh, more complex in those 40 45 years you know and 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 the monsters have have become more complex you know del toro is coming just from the from the wave of the, of these amazing uh, American horror films, also it has grown out from the Italian gallows, and it's perfectly placed all these these elements uh, in in Kronos. I mean, it has a, also a, a, a huge influence even from the from the Hammer films, you know. And but watching or rewatch uh, reviewing uh, Kronos yesterday, uh, I love the film in, in all the aspects. But uh, what, what I was just amazed yesterday was the how about the framing and the lighting of of, of Guillermo Navarro, uh, who, who has shot most of his movies or all of his movies. Uh, I, I can't quite remember, but uh, I mean the the. The framing and the lighting are perfect from the first film, which is is, is amazing, and 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 you see the passion of a of a young boy of a kid who really 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 loves movies and wants to do and and wants to do a movie that looks like a classic, and that's why why uh, the film hasn't aged practically nothing, you know. No, not at all, and it's you know it, it doesn't. One has to imagine that it was a lower-budgeted film, you know, back in the early 90s. But there is something about, as you noticed... It was a, it was a small-budget film for, like, uh, comparing, comparing it to American films. But in Mexico, during his time, it was one of the most expensive films. It was uh, as, even, almost as expensive as uh, Arau's uh, Water for... Chocolate for water, like uh, you know, it, it was a huge production. We we and that's why the film looks like like uh, that has that quality. You know, it, it looks uh, above most of the films. Yeah, so it's gorgeous. It seems like everything went before the camera. Everything was on screen. Everything was beautifully realized for the story that he was trying to tell. So that, you know, it, it never seems as though the movie and the story he's telling is really wanting for anything, which, uh, which I love. And like you said, it, as a result, like it, it doesn't feel as though it's aged today. And like I said, you know, I mean, it's, I honestly think you could release this movie today as the new Guillermo del Toro film and people wouldn't bat <laughs> an eye at it, you know? And, uh, and again, for all of those reasons that it seems like, you know, he's still wrestling with all of the same stuff. You know, not just, you know, I mentioned the uh, the monsters being the heroes, but as you mentioned, too, the, you know, the villains, the humans are often the villains. But it's funny, too, that even though they are, I... They're lovely. The the, the, the villains, the bad guys, uh, even are, are, are so charismatic, you know, in all his films. Yes. But, but here, Ron Perlman and Claudio Brook are, are evil... And that make them funny and lovable, you know. They're really good 
lovable bad guys, you know? Yeah, his villains are always sympathetic or charismatic or, yeah. just Charismatic, yeah. Yeah, or just damned likable. Or at the very least, you know, they are... I, I would say that they're likable in the sense of, say, Thomas Sharp in Crimson Peak or uh, <laughs> or Nuada, Prince Nuada from uh, Hellboy 2 or even the um, – uh, yeah. oh, gosh, uh, Nomak from Blade 2. Or, uh, but, you know, in some cases when we're thinking about like, you know, uh, uh, Pan's Labyrinth or The Shape of Water, you know, I'm thinking of Captain Vidal. I couldn't say that he's that likable, but he's at the very least human, you know, and uh, – yeah. And it, it seems like Del Toro again. He he never presents things as black and white. There he has never put a villain on screen who has twirled his mustache. You know, and I love that. No. I, I love that yeah. he makes all of his people human. Even the monsters he humanizes. And uh, you know, here in Kronos, we have Ron Perlman's Angel. You know, who's a complete son of a bitch. He's surely <laughs> a bad man, but he's also funny. He is charismatic. He is. You know, one of the first times that we see him, he's making a little girl laugh. You know, how could we yeah, not like this it, guy? He's asking which nose he should go with for his nose job, you know. Uh, and I, I, I love that. It's never black and white with Del Toro, not with his heroes, not with his villains. And it's interesting, again, to see that all of that was right there at the beginning of his career. Yeah, it really is a blueprint for all for all of his films. Uh, and also, I want to point that, uh, or go back uh, again, to uh, since you mentioned Blade 2, Blade 2 is... Also, another uh, great vampire movie. I mean, we, we haven't seen vampires like that, you know. I mean, he goes around the vampires just not to put them fangs and teeth, you know. And and that's what makes Kronos a very a very uh, visionary film on, on on vampires. You don't have you don't have fangs. The the vampire is a device with a with an insect on it, and it was made by an alchemist, you know? So he goes all the way around just to make something new out of vampirism, just as in Blade 2, the, the, the vampire who eats vampires, and which uh, the king of vampires, which is his father, commissions a squad to find and kill his own son. So I, I, this is what makes not only Kronos, but Blades very, very, very important and visionary films within vampire films in my top 10 films <laughs> for vampire. And it's funny too, that there's, uh, I'm glad that you mentioned blade too. There is this, there's a sort of through line. There's this connective tissue between all of the times that he has sort of visited and revisited the, uh, the vampire mythos. Like he, not only did he do Kronos, not only did he do blade two, but also if we count the strain, you know, the, the, the novel yeah. series and the uh, television series. You know, when you look at yeah. um, Kronos, there's that great touch where, uh, you know, the, the, the vampires uh, in the making, uh, their flesh rots off. But beneath, they have this smooth, white, like marble uh, kind of skin underneath. And then when you get a Blade two, the main villain of that, the father, the one who really kicks the plot into motion, the one who wants to kill it's his son. White. It's all, yeah. yeah, he has the same. He's flesh. been around a lot, yeah. And then, you know, when you look at Nomak, his son, who is the, uh, the, the mutant vampires or the different vampire, he has that thing where, uh, you know, his chin sort of splits open, becomes like this, uh, this uh, bisected sort of mandible that clamps onto his victims, which is something that's eventually revisited in The Strain. So it feels like almost, you know, like uh, Kronos 
and Blade 2 and The Strain could all potentially exist within the same world. And I just, God, that makes me wonder. I mean, you know, the ending to Kronos seems relatively upbeat, but if the sunlight doesn't get poor Jesus at the end of that movie, I wonder if he's going to have the same chin issue that those other vampires eventually did. <laughs> well, no, the thing is that the, the, the ending of, of uh, Kronos is uh, is an homage to the to the to Nosferatu, just like that. I mean, it's the the same framing of the uh, of the ending of Ronald's movie, and and Kronos, I think, is the smallest uh, version of all his films. Like just this tiny, little, lovable fairy tale, and since it, it has to be gothic, he has to die. You know, it's it's far away from the from the action film as uh, as Blade, you know, and it, it's a, in that in that case it's a very romantic gothic uh, film, uh, uh, and it is, you know, you mentioned this too, like it's it's everything that he brings to his version of a vampire story. You know, there there are so many things about it that make it such a non-traditional vampire story. And yet it does acknowledge all of the old tropes as well. You know, there's the blood drinking, of course. There's the piercing of the heart. There's the sunlight. Uh, Jesus, at one point, even kind of, sort of, wears a cloak at one point. But then Del Toro comes in and he adds all of these other marvelous touches. The pale skin, you know, beneath the rotted flesh. The insect, the mechanism. The insect. That's very important in the, I think, in Del Toro's universe. Like his his fascination with with insects as these immortal beings or beings that or or creatures that can outlive humans, you know, like they can go dormant during ages, and then if you put a little blood or food in, into these insects, they come around, and that's what makes uh, it's part of the DNA of of, of the strain and, and blade and and essentially the invention of Kronos. Absolutely. And I, you know, I just love that he's able to take something like that, something, you know, the, these tropes, you know, this, uh, by that point, I think vampires have kind of worn out their welcome, even though, you know, I, around this time, Bram Stoker's Dracula had probably come out and, you know, uh, you know, kind of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like a, a, at the same year or a year later or a year after that, that we saw Gary Oldman all in, in white skin. <laughs> but I don't know. It, it's, it, it was the idea just going around, you know. Uh, uh, I was I was I, I was hearing an interview where Del Toro says that when he's making a movie uh, or about to release a movie, another movie comes around just with the same themes. And <laughs> and, and and he was talking that that. Uh, just he, he was about to do Kronos and and Guaron told him, hey, I just I just saw this movie uh, where they have this device just as yours, but instead of being round, it's is is square and it was Hellraiser, which has is some themes connected, but 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 going around this evil device and <laughs> which which we we have on 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 on, on Kronos, no. Yeah, I, I'm now just in the back of my mind imagining uh, kind of uh, what a Guillermo del Toro directed version of Hellraiser would be. I'm sorry, um, but uh, it would be more classic, you know. I think it would be a little bit less gory and maybe, well, maybe not, but uh, more cling to fantasy. I don't know. I he don't would, know. He would work insects into it some way. There, there would be like <laughs> there would be cinnabites and insectabites somehow, uh, yeah. and I would be there. I would watch that movie. 
But, uh, you know, we mentioned Dracula, and it's funny, that reminds me, too. You know, I was thinking of how he took this relatively worn and threadbare kind of, you know, all of these tropes and sort of made them new again by adding his own little flourishes and own touches. But, you know, in, in its own way, uh, his sister's transformation does, in a way, kind of remind me of Dracula. The Dracula from uh, Stoker's Coppola. original novel. And, yeah, and Coppola's ah, as well, okay, because yeah. Coppola was one of the few filmmakers to actually do this, too. Um you know, Dracula starts as an old man and then with more and more blood and uh, in Jesus' case, you know, more and more chronos mechanism treatments, uh, he becomes younger, he becomes stronger, he becomes more virile. And rewatching the movie... And, he go, room, and then he goes back to, at the ending of the films, or the, uh, yeah, the films, he goes back to being this old guy just before... Yes. Uh, blow into flames you know and it's funny you you mentioned uh, we were mentioning uh, Coppola's uh, Dracula because if you watch Dracula it also has an uh, has a huge uh, influence and and has directly homage to Nosferatu's field to to to, to Nosferatu you know like there are many a lot of shots which are great homages also uh, to, to Nosferatu, no, and it's the same with 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 El Toro. I mean, who who wouldn't love Nosferatu? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, it's classic too. Like, and you know, maybe drawing on those older classics too. Maybe that sort of there's something about him taking those older tropes and again, you know, kind of applying his own style and own sensibilities to them. But nevertheless, because they have that sort of base. Uh, in the classics, you know, then it does it does make Kronos a bit more timeless. I think it, it it's you know we've said this how many times now, but it really hasn't aged today. It feels like, and you know, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years from now, people are going to watch Kronos, and it's still going to feel kind of timeless. I think. Yeah, I I I I I I've known a lot of uh, Toros fans, and but they don't really know about it until you just. Uh, the point that I'm, look at this great vampire film and they just go fall on their backs when just when they see them you know <laughs> uh, yeah yeah and you know too jesus I, I i love that character we were talking about him sort of like having the same trajectory of dracula but it reminded me on this last revisit that dracula can be portrayed as both sympathetic and not you know but when he's presented as just a monster it's usually because of his uh you know his needs or the methods that he has to employ for his own survival and that's what makes him a monster but jesus is presented a little differently you know he is presented with the uh same sort of affliction but he ultimately chooses to sacrifice himself presumably to which is beautiful yes to save the person he loves and that sacrifice ultimately sets him free so in a way he's almost the uh the anti-Dracula, I think. You know, they follow the same trajectory, but they choose very different things at the end. You know, Dracula is a monster who ultimately needs to be put down, whereas Jesus at the end chooses to uh, to sacrifice to do himself. It. Yeah, yeah. Which I love. I, yeah. I love that. And I love the fact that, uh, you know, this is, this is a story of an old man. You know, this is a story of a guy who is nearing the end of his life. And, you know, the movie is called Kronos, you know, and it's surely about time uh you know the hero and the villain are both old men they're both nearing the end of their lives they're both and, feeling that time and, also is running it, out. and also it has this reminiscence as uh, as chronos ate up all of, his, all of his children including Zeus. so at the end of the movie he's about to eat his own 
the granddaughter. And that's when he realizes he is a monster and he he decides not to go ahead with the, with his wonderful gift and sacrifice uh, everything and, and die. Oh, it's funny that maybe that's why also it's called the the title has a lot of sense, like the Kronos eating his own kin, you know. Yes, and I, I, that's such a creepy idea, too, especially considering, I mean, <laughs> yeah, having just revisited the movie, too, I mean, there is that moment where you're just, you know, I've seen the movie how many times now, and yet every time you get to that moment, I'm still kind of like, you know, I'm white-knuckling it through that moment. I'm leaning forward like, don't eat your granddaughter. Please don't eat your granddaughter. But, yeah, but you know, there is that desperation in his face, and it's the same thing on, you know, the, the face of the villain of the piece, you know. Uh, they're both doing what they can initially to prolong their lives, and Angel... Angel is, you know, time is a factor with him, too. He's trying to wait out his uncle so he can claim his inheritance. Even the Kronos device, beyond its name, seems to signal time passing by, what with it being a um, kind of a very clockwork-like mechanism, you know? And it's just, it's just curious to me that set against this thematic backdrop is the relationship between Jesus and his granddaughter, Aurora, which I looked it up. I, I was like, you know what? I, I had never done this before, but I was like, I wonder what that name means. It can't be an accident that she's named that. And sure enough, Aurora is a name meaning, meaning dawn or sunrise. Dawn, yeah. And so, yeah. you know, we, we have a man nearing the end of his life and we have a little girl just starting hers. And it's a wonderful way to sort of solidify that idea by showing us that, you know, that sort of cycle within a single family, you know, death and life. And Jesus ultimately doesn't need a rebirth or an eternal life by the end of the film because he has his granddaughter to pass the baton to, you know, his love, his knowledge, everything he's taught her. You know, we it. I love that in the final moments of this vampire movie, this very fantastic, you know, fantastical horror movie that by the final moments, we kind of return to the natural order of things. And I just, I, I love the movie so much for that and that relationship. Yes, and it has that great build-up because uh, as most vampires, not, not as most, but as many or some vampire films, when I was watching the film yesterday, it has, it has like this uh, structure of, 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 of a junkie, you know, how he gets up hooked up with the power of, of blood, you know, like he starts just with the, with the small bites and then he goes to the stake and then he goes drinking blood from, from in a party and he, the, the character, it's, it's really a junkie and gets seduced by the, by, by, by the Kronos invention and everything. And, and, and he has this crave for, for, for blood and even for, I don't know, he really, really doesn't want eternal life, but the craving uh, moves in, uh, starts building up in, in another subplot, uh, emotional subplot. And when you get to the point that that that, that he's about to, to 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 bite her her own granddaughter, comes the big sacrifice. So everything comes comes together because previously. The, the monster, Juan Gris, is already a monster. He's already a vampire. And he is beautiful how the, the granddaughter lives with a vampire for a brief time, and they coexist very well. He, 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 she makes her toy, uh, this trunk where she puts his, his toys 
he he uses he lends it to the grandfather so it can be his coffin you know and so so the the granddaughter and the and the uh, and the and the vampire coexist uh, in a in in a very lovely way but that cannot go on forever you know I agree. and you know i we've talked about uh, his sacrifice and i'm wondering i Watching the film, with the lead's name being Jesus, with the mentions of Christ and insects walking on water, and the themes of sacrifice and redemption by the end of the film, what what do you make of the film's use of yeah, it's, sort it's, of religious it's very, imagery? <laughs> of course, it's a very Mexican Catholic film. It's all there, you know. It's, it's uh, Empresas de la Guardia, which is uh, Angel de la Guardia, which is translated the Angel of the Guardian Angel. You have Jesus, which is Jesus, uh, uh, the resurrection, the blood. It's uh, it's all in there. It's a very Mexican Catholic film, all 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 in. You know. What do you make of the uh, <laughs> uh, angel being essentially a villain in the piece? If the guardian, you know, if he is a guardian angel, what do you make of him ultimately, you know, duking it out almost in the heavens with uh, Jesus on top of that roof at the end? Well, the thing is that the, the angel goes both ways because the Satan or the devil is also an angel, you know. So the, the, the temptation comes from an angel, is hidden within the statue of an angel, and at the end of the film, they fight on the on the on the roof where you see the the, the name of the company, which is the La Guardia, the angel of the world card, and that's where you make where the last stand, the the big western duel between. Ron Perlman and and, 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 and and Jesus Gris goes, uh, which is, um, is 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 beautifully shot with, with with the lights from the the letters coming from behind and 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 the building up and which has one of of, of my, uh, has beautiful uh, uh, dialogues uh, Western dialogues when 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 Jesus Gris tells Ron Perlman for me it's only pain. And they go right into the into the into action. <laughs> yeah, and it's um, and I do love uh, you know the again those little sort of brushstrokes that Del Toro brings to his storytelling, and certainly the religious imagery and the themes uh, that he sort of brought to it. I thought you know they they only deepen the film further. But I I did wonder what you made of uh, you know it. <laughs> Is he sort of equating, you know, the religious imagery uh, and themes in the movie to, you know, as it were, like vampirism uh, in attempts at living forever? You know, I was trying to sort of suss out ultimately what his uh, his point of view or his uh, his opinion is on, say, you know, uh, religion or Catholicism or, uh, you know, Christianity, as it were, and uh, or what you as a viewer might be gleaning from it as well. Well, El Toro comes from Guadalajara, which is, I mean, if in Mexico City we're religious, Guadalajara is even more religious, you know, so the, his upbringing must have been, been certainly more religious than any guy from, from, from the city. So all the Catholic themes are, are, are there, and, and and they're even there on the, on the you know, the 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 rise of the dead uh, it's an apocalyptic theme that comes uh, uh, with 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 the monster itself you know? 
the blood. I mean, it's like uh, uh, artist parallels. No, Jesus is like the first uh, first zombie or the best vampire, which are the vampire and the and the zombies are cousins. You know, and and it's all all there on the on the on the mythology, all all mixed together. So it's in the in its a, the DNA for sure. So, and it seems like that's something that he's certainly brought to a lot of his later movies as well. You know, there's certainly that that imagery in The Devil's Backbone. And I I think Blade Two gets a pass in a way, not that, you know, uh, those weren't deliberate, but I mean, it being a vampire tale too, I mean, that's kind of, kind of expected as well there. But even something like Hellboy, uh, you know, when you yeah. have your, uh, your lead character carrying around a crucifix, uh, not necessarily to ward off vampires, but just, you know, it's something that his father passed along to him. So... Um, no, but but Hellboy has is, is a, also a very Catholic theme. I mean, it's the son of not the son of God; it's the son of the devil, and he's offered the throne of the devil, and it's an apocalyptic movie, very much like The Strain. You know, The Strain uh, is it's set an, at the end of times, such as Hellboy, and Hellboy uh, uh, Rasputin is trying to to <laughs> to bring the the apocalypse to the earth through. And 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 Hellboy decides not to do it, you know, which is like the the negative of the of, of Christianism. So, and I, you know, I do love that he continually revisits not just themes but characters. You know, he will draw. I mean, I I don't think it's any stretch to say that uh, De La Guardia, uh, not Angel, but his uh, uncle. You know, that's essentially, you know, that character is essentially revisited, I think, as the main villain in Blade 2. And equally, you know, we have, uh, you know, with uh, Jesus and Aurora in this film, you know, you have that grandparent and grandchild relationship. And then uh, in Mimic, you have a, a grandfather and his grandson, and you have that same sort of relationship. And I remember reading in that Fangoria that I had mentioned earlier that, um, you know, it just struck me as odd. Uh, I, at the time, when I read that interview, he noted that with Kronos, he had that uh, grandparent-grandchild relationship and that he wasn't done with those characters. So he brought variations of them into Mimic as well. And I thought that was really interesting that, you know, he, he, he writes these characters and they reach the end of their story, but he's not quite finished with saying what he wants to with them. So, you know, he, he essentially <laughs> changes them a bit and he brings them into a completely different tale to say even more with them. And uh, I think that's probably true of the rest of his filmography, too, from movie to movie. Yes. They go on, yeah. Like in Shape of Water, it ends... But it's also the the beginning of a new chapter. Uh, Pacific Rim is all the same. Like I mean, the monsters will will come back, uh, and so on. Oh, they're not conclusive. All, all his films. I mean, even Hellboy Two. Everybody, I mean, I, I believe is still expecting the last part of the trilogy, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I love those movies. I adore. I I love his director's cut of the first film. I think his second film is brilliant. I I think one of the great tragedies of uh, maybe all film, not just his filmography, it, not just genre filmmaking, but the greatest tragedy is that we will likely never get a Hellboy three, especially after that last reboot. So uh, I, I, I I don't know because I don't know everything can can happen. 
you know, I don't know because I think Hellboy. Uh, I mean, it had his uh, the new the new version had his thing, but Hellboy is Del Toro. It's Mignola and Del Toro. I think uh, Del Toro understand uh, and understand understood the 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 comic. The, I, I, I don't know if it, the understanding was the, the the correct word. He made it his own, you know, like pretty much like like James Whale, uh, consciously or not, made his own Frankenstein, and the films of Frankenstein uh, became more important or as important as the novel. I think the same ha- happened with 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 Del Toro's two f- first films of of Hellboy. They they. They added up to the to 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 the to the, to the universe of the of the characters. So, it, I think there some someday there will be a new Hellboy movie that will have to to nurture and, and from Del Toro's films. You know, you, I don't know if I'm making sense. <laughs> no, no, you are, and I I just hope that that's uh, you know I've lost my. I I have. I used to be very optimistic, and with every passing year, I would just tell myself, no, no, it's going to happen. One day, one day it's going to happen. There's no way that he could have made those two films and, you know, uh, attain the status that he has in Hollywood without being able to finish his grand trilogy. It's not going to happen. And then, you know, he sort of teased everybody on Twitter, you know, sort of built everybody up like, okay, we're going to have talks again. And then, you know, there was that one heartbreaking tweet that came that one night where he noted that uh, he and Perlman and Mignola met, and he just, it was short and sweet. He was like, uh, it was determined that there will be no Hellboy 3, and that is the end of that. And it's just kind of like, but, 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 but. And then not long after that, the reboot was announced, and it's like, yeah, why? Why would you, especially, like, I... Uh, I the, uh, you're right, you're absolutely right in that. Del Toro took Hellboy and made it its own, uh, made it his own, yeah. and he, you know, I I think he was relatively faithful to the comic, but obviously there were major changes as well, and that's I think yeah. that's fine. And you know, I I just wonder if the intent with the last you know film, the reboot, was to hew closer to the original comics. You know, that's certainly that was kind of like the party line that was being thrown out there. In, but you know, I don't know because the movie, but you see it, and then it's like, no, no, it's no closer no. to the comics than Del Toro no. was. It's just different in its own way. No, I think the 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 thing with the with the new film yeah. is that it was more closer to uh, superhero movies than to the comic. You know, I when they told it was going to be darker, and I I, I was really expecting like this. Like in the comics, which is more like Sherlock Holmes, and everything yes, is yeah. it's more about the a mystery or, and more gothic and more uh, about the legends and the, the the things which we don't know and more Lovecraftian and you know like like uh, some uh, uh, a great small adventure with with creepy things, but no, it was more tending, it was more in the trend of action. Hero super movies, uh, superhero movies. I mean, yeah, it was all. It was just. I. I it's more like I agree. studio. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was lots of blood and thunder and little else. And uh, yeah, what makes me too that I think, or well, I believe that someday, and maybe Del Toro and a motion captured Ron Perlman will <laughs> come back. <laughs> yeah, because we 
we do now have the well they they have the technology to do that you know and when and I don't know when when Del Toro was announcing the third uh, uh, Hellboy movie the motion capture and the CGI weren't as as, ama- as amazing as they are technically now you know so I do have faith. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I remember reading back in the day when they were still, uh, you know, mulling about how exactly they were going to do Hellboy. Del Toro had mentioned in an interview that he asked, uh, I think James Cameron, uh, he was like, can yeah. I do a fully CG character? Can I pull this off? And even back in 2000, what was it 2002, maybe 2003, uh, apparently Cameron's answer was you can do everything but the love story. And it's like, you know, that's a very good, you need a human there, you know, to pull that off, you know, and, uh, and so ultimately he went with, you know, practical and makeup effects and everything. And I personally, I think Perlman looked amazing. I, uh, you know, especially, I think we kind of take that design for granted because we're used to seeing him in that makeup. But then after you see the reboot and with David Harbour, who is a great actor and was a solid choice to take over that role. But the makeup. Yeah, because because he's funny, you know, he's as funny as Perlman, you know, he had but I think what happens with with Hellboy is uh, pretty much like the James Bond movies. You can have a good James Bond, but n- nobody can pull out a Craig or a Sean Connery, you know. So what you're saying is is that we got our On Her Majesty's Secret yeah. Service with David Harbour, but now we yeah. need the sort yeah, of that's uh... perfect. Sure, <laughs> you totally it... nailed it. Never and say die it... again, or never say yeah. never again. Whatever the hell that last Connery was. And I... Yes, and I think that, that Perlman is the Sean Connery of Hellboy. And, <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, and there will come someone or that, that will nail it and give it its own, own thing, you know. You know, I, w- I would hope that Del Toro, after winning an Oscar, would be able to say, you know, would be able to write his own projects at this point. And yet, you know, not only were we not able to get a Hellboy 3, but how the hell... Does no studio see the potential in letting this man tackle Lovecraft without the Mountains of Madness? Well, I, I don't know the full story, but uh, just what I've read in the, in the news and that, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I cannot understand it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they made a... The the Nicholas Cage the the color the color out of space I, I haven't seen that. it but oh everybody says that is amazing okay so hang yeah. up with me right now uh, <laughs> and go I watched it earlier this week and it is um, you know I was posting on Twitter about this honestly sir it is uh, you know I love um, I love Reanimator I love From Beyond I love Castle Freak I even Lovecraft movies no love like yeah they're no, no love. They're so not. this is the first Lovecraft, right? It is, well, so. you know, up until this point, I would always tell people that the best Lovecraft movie was In the Mouth of Madness, even though that wasn't actually based on anything Lovecraft related. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, you know, some of the stuff that Del Toro toys with in Hellboy, you know, kind of skirts around that. But honestly, the color out of space feels like the first honest-to-goodness Lovecraft movie. It Not only does it take the, the stories seriously uh not only does it give them the weight that they kind of need in order to sing not only does it really just dive into the weirdness of lovecraft but more than anything it seems like the one thing that people aren't able to capture whether they want to or not like i don't think honestly don't think Stuart gordon had any intention in making lovecraft's 
you know, uh, Herbert West reanimator into a film no. tonally, you know, even though plot wise, no. I mean, it does, you know, it does draw quite a bit from it, but when you, watch no, I mean, it, and they didn't have the budget, you know, I mean, the, 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 the last 20 minutes of Hellboy, it's the most, it's the, the closest thing we, we had until then, uh, uh, of Lovecraft, you know, like arguably that... maybe Yuzna's Necronomicon, you know, kind of brushes with Lovecraft a bit, like tries to get in there and really bring him to life. I, I love that movie. Yeah. I don't think it's fully successful on that front. But this year, we have gotten not one but two, really big, really interesting swings at Lovecraft. Uh, Which is the other one? Oh, so Color Out of Space, I would say, yeah. is amazing. It's incredible. It's Richard Stanley at his finest. And yeah. it is watching that movie is it gives me the feeling that reading Lovecraft does, which has never happened with any movie before. Now, the second thing is, OK, I'm going to potentially walk in the spoiler territory here. So you let me know if you want <laughs> me to stop at any point. And listeners, that goes for you, too. Maybe skip ahead for 30 or 45 seconds if you don't want uh <laughs> well, I can't tell you what the movie is because that would ruin it because I've already... Okay, so let me just put it this way. There okay. was a big-budget studio action horror film that was released a couple of months ago that did about $5 at the box office. And this movie, a lot of people went on and on about, oh my God, it's actually pretty great. So, I went to the theater to see it about a week after it had been out, and I watched it, and oh my God, it's actually pretty great. But then, in the final 10 minutes of the movie, let's just say a Lovecraftian character pops up and is a wonderfully realized version of this type of character. So that when I walked out after the end credits, I, I hopped online and I was like, oh, I wonder you know, what the director intended. Was that an homage? Was that meant to be this character? And the director was like, no, it's not meant to be that character. It, in fact, is that character. So, okay. and this is maybe the... Is Godzilla? Uh, I'm sorry? Is that Godzilla? Or who, what no. movie is that? Do you want me to tell you? Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I tell you what, <laughs> no. just, uh, just, I will follow you on Twitter. Uh, I already follow you on Twitter, but I'm just, I'm going to keep a keen eye out. And <laughs> when you see this movie, just know that like, uh, just try and keep up with everything that's hitting home video in the next month and a half to two months. And then okay, uh, right. when you see it, you're going to see possibly the best realized version of this character on the big screen that we've seen up until this point. Simply, uh, if for no other reason. I, know. Than... I, I think I know your, what are you talking about? It has to do something with underwater, right? Maybe. No. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I... I haven't seen it also. Okay, but you're familiar but that, with... But, but, but that got into into Mexican movie theaters. Okay, all right. It is... The movie on its own merits is actually pretty damned great, but uh -huh. just to see that character realized with that amount of money and that amount of... Uh, honestly, just style and the way he's employed, he it's utterly terrifying at the end. It's not about spectacle. It's just about, like... You know, it, it's about instilling dread in the audience and the characters. It feels like, you know, when a character sees that, you know, that character, uh, it, their reaction is that to seeing a god, you know, standing before them. And it's it's a bone-chilling moment, but it's beautiful at the same time. Okay, I'll watch it just for feeling that Lovecraftian feeling. <laughs> 
And I hope to see Colorado Space someday in movie theaters, which I think I won. So I'll I'll wait patiently on Metcon streaming. And fingers crossed, one day, someday, we'll get At the Mountains of Madness. I don't know how we haven't gotten it yet, but I have my fingers crossed that some studio is going to be brave, brave enough to offer a man with Del Toro's track record you know, yeah. the money he needs to I think a that, stream project. Yeah. yeah, I think that's more closely possible than Hellboy 3, but I, yeah. I really rule for both someday. <laughs> All right, so we have digressed a bit, but you know what? That's this podcast in a nutshell. We do that all the time, so that's okay. But that said, I think we have just about reached the end of our time. I just wanted to ask you, sir, do you have any final parting thoughts on Guillermo del Toro's Kronos? I love it. It's one of my top best horror uh, movies, one of my top vampire uh, films, which I think is visionary, also with Blade 2. There's things on the vampire universe that I haven't seen never in previous films or new films or put the made made a lot of what Del Toro did in these two, well, especially in, in Play 2, but uh, they're very groundbreaking on, on terms of vampi- vampirism. Uh, if, if you love Del Toro and you haven't seen this and you love vampires, it'll blow your mind away. It's a beautiful fairy tale, as, as all the, the, the uh, works. I agree. All right, sir, yeah. thank you again for being on no, the show. No, thank and you. for choosing such a fantastic film to talk about. Now, can I ask, where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Well, I'm in Twitter, basically. I'm trying to get away from social media because <laughs> last year promoting Belzebub was really exhausting. So I've been... Uh, less around in Facebook and Instagram so I just uh, uh, go around uh, on Twitter on arroba Don Emilio Portes and yeah if if uh, anybody wants to write to me that's a good way to, to hooking up right, and I just wanted to say to everybody listening out there too if you have not gotten a chance to see Bells of Youth Watch it ASAP. Get Shutter. You should already, if you're listening to this show, you should already have Shutter anyway. But get Shutter and watch this movie because it is fantastic. So uh, it has honestly, and I'm not, uh, I'm not just saying this because uh, you you were kind enough to be on the show. I mean this when I say that. And I just revisited the movie earlier too, and it's still packed the same punch. And I will not describe what happens, but the opening of your film is maybe. One of the most shocking sequences I've seen in a horror movie. It is easily one of the most shocking opening sequences I've ever seen in a movie. Maybe ever. Not just in a long oh, time. But pos- it, nah, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of angry, so I'm not really complimenting you. I, it is, I, 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 I had nightmares initially, and I'll probably have nightmares tonight from having seen that again because it is so utterly bone-chilling and terrifying and genuinely horrifying. But that said... That's what we love about horror movies. So if you're out there listening, definitely check out Mr. Portis' film because it's brilliant. And can I ask, Yes. are there any plans for a, a follow-up uh, to Bells of Youth uh, in, in any way? Can fans keep – because, you know, the end of the movie does feel like, you know, it feels like Ritter is kind of set up to maybe not have further adventures, but it feels like there could potentially be more story. But you've also set up a mythology that feels like you could delve into further as well. 
Yeah, actually, we're, uh, Luis Carlos and I are more uh, anxious to exploring the universe previously and on on how Basilio Canetti, that's, that is this uh, rogue, uh, excommunicated priest, uh, how 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 the hell did he find out where where was uh, where was the Messiah going to be born and and, wh- and how he 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 managed to trap uh, Belzebub into into a Christ? You know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of material that that we just had to cut from the film, and there's a lot of material that didn't uh, went into the screenplay and it's just floating around, and we're we're just uh, 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 playing with that material. Maybe first with a graphic novel uh, and also a, 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 a prequel, at least for a screenplay. You know. That would be fantastic. I'll keep an eye out for it, sir, yeah. because like I said, I, I adore the movie and I definitely want to see more. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, yeah. All right, sir. Thank you so much again for being on the show. Jason, thank you very much. It's an honor. Uh, and, I'll be, and I'll be happy to go back and review any Mexican <laughs> classics for, uh, for, for, for the audience. Please do. Please do. Yeah. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I am at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.